Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. I know it's been a little while since I've been on, guys, but I finally uh, got a guest that I felt absolutely definitely needed to be on the air. Um, if this is your first time checking out V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can listen to more archives of shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, politicians, a few good ones, um, activists, scientists, uh, and all kinds of other great content, including roundtable discussions about different current events that affect the activist world. Um, you can also check out my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet. Um, I tend to have a lot of documentary filmmakers on, and I review documentary films, which is one of the reasons why I brought on our guest today. Um, and so thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today. And if you like what you hear, um, I do accept donations, although I don't have any donation goals anymore. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear more, don't hesitate. You can do that at my website as well. So now I'm going to welcome my guest to the show. Um, how would you prefer to be called, by your last name or first name? <laughs> Mr. Booth sounds a little too formal. <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't have to call me Mr. Booth. Just call me Kevin. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Um, I, it's actually really great to finally have you on, Kevin. Um, I've wanted to have you on V-Radio since I watched your first documentary uh, years and years ago. Uh, it actually had a big impact on me like during my libertarian phase, um, I was kind of back and forth on the issue of the war on drugs. Uh, to give you a little background on myself and how it affected me, um, the very early part of my life, I lived on a farm. Life was very simple, a dairy farm where your nearest neighbor is really far away and all that. Um, and then eventually my parents got divorced and the economic situation was really terrible, um, like uh, bankruptcy was involved and all that. And I ended up in the ghetto and um, some of the more formative years of my life were spent being kind of a child from the outside of the ghetto who was kind of forced to live there. As you can imagine, that wasn't easy. Um, couple that with the fact that, you know, I got to see the drug war up close and personal, um, you know, in the form of one of my neighbor's houses going from just being a place where people live to slowly turning into a crack house while we were living there, you know, just to be living right next door to them. And I still remember to this day, you know, um, one of the culture shocks for me was like I was dating this girl who came from a much nicer neighborhood and she was visiting one night and, you know, they started raiding the house next door and her, she was like glued to the window because she had never seen anything like that before, you know, and they threw the flashbang in and you could see the light, you know, flicker throughout the house. And, you know, to me, I had been so accustomed to it since I had seen that house get raided so many times at that point um, that I just kind of casually went back to playing video games like it was no big deal. Um, looking back on that, in the you know, in in hindsight, though, obviously, I realized that I was desensitized to something that was pretty terrible. But one of the things I have to say, you know, because I've heard both sides of the argument about the the decriminalization or legalization of of drugs argument that was different about your documentary was that it wasn't one sided. You still showed that, you know, by no means are we suggesting that there are not drugs out there that are in fact quite bad. You know. Um, one of the scenes in particular, actually, um, that really struck me was the scene with that fellow who was naked at a bar, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, high on PCP or whatever, just randomly blabbing, and you know. Um, so, but so you put the good with the bad. You also, yeah, yeah. no, 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 but you know for sure. I mean, and, and I got that scene from uh, the first American drug war film, and uh, you say years and years ago, you make it, you're making me feel old. Well, it, well, it was 2008. I guess, right. uh, God, it's five years ago, dying. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's funny that a lot of people in the in the drug legalization movement uh, did have trouble with me putting that scene in there. You know, don't don't show that guy on PCP that gives the wrong thing that makes drug. You know, but it, it it's just like. You know, my my feeling is, how are you ever gonna to write this wrong if you're not honest? And basically, everybody that's on in this movement is accusing the federal government or everybody that's creating this drug war of being dishonest. And at the same time, you're wanting to uh, argue with them and fight them by being dishonest. So that's not going to work. In, in order for us to shed light on this, we have to be 100% honest and and trying to. Uh, Act, you know, there are people in this movement that that will sit there and, and very legitimate conservative people and look me right in the face and say, "Well, I think, you know, I think all drugs should be de- decriminalized and all drugs should be legal." And and I guess on a, on a certain level, I agree with that. I don't think you should go to prison for what you put in your body, but I think that you know, I don't want, I don't want to live in a world where people can sell PCP to to school kids. I don't I don't want to live in a world where where uh people can just go buy crystal meth down the street or or my next door neighbor can sell crystal meth. I I I have no uh I have no interest in that. Right, but it's it's kind of like the the decriminalization attitude points out is that people who you know, do that kind of stuff. It was like uh like when you go to the uh, when you went to Amsterdam or Holland you know, like you said, it took you some effort to be able to find a, you know, a single enthusiastic crack smoker. It's just <laughs> after people see that stuff, that's the thing. You know, it's like it's about educating people. You know, I see that scene with that guy with PCP. I'm never touching that stuff, you know, ever, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. And that is a funny story. I don't know how funny it is. The story that goes along with that clip, and that is when I when I did the LAPD ride-along, I had to sign a 10-page contract through the Los Angeles Police Department, stating that they would have final right of control over the edit, yada yada, of the film. So when they saw that scene of, uh, you know, basically it's it's a naked black guy being tasered, and he's got taser darts all in his, you know, naked body, and he's ranting and raving all crazy. Uh, the police's response was, well, that well, you can't put that in your movie because that gives away some of our um, top secret, uh, you know, techniques. Right, top and, secret. Yeah, and I, and 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 I actually had to get a lawyer and started arguing with them back and forth, and then they finally came back around to, and this actually it, it was in Chinatown here in Los Angeles, and the guy had run into a um, a restaurant, a really big old Chinese restaurant, the smack dab in the middle of Chinatown, where this whole incident took place, and so the police ended up saying, well, if you can get the owner of the restaurant to uh, sign something stating that it's okay with him, then we'll allow it. And it was so ridiculous. I ended up going down to this restaurant trying to get them to, to sign something, um, and it was, it turned out to be the most ridiculous thing that the police... The police were basically just playing a game with me, you know, and they knew right. exactly what they were doing. And they, they, they have all these... They have these people, and the police have them, the prisons have them, all these, all these uh, so-called... You know, services, the social services that are supposed to be on our side, they all have these so-called PR people. And really, these PR people's jobs are nothing more than to make sure that the press does not get to do what they want. And in that only the mainstream press will tell the exact story that they want you to tell. And that's exactly what the people from the LAPD were doing, was trying to control exactly what I did. And, and, the, and the ironic part was, was 
I, I was not trying to make the officers look bad. That was not my intent right. at all. In fact, I really liked the guy that I was with. I ended up being friends with the officer that I spent the day filming with, and he was actually proud of the film when he saw it. And it was right. never my intention to make police officers look bad. I didn't even really think that they had... I mean, I've seen people on PCP before. Uh, honestly, it's... I know that, you know, particularly in the movements that you and I run in, people are very hard on cops, but the reality is, is a guy on PCP can frickin' kill you, you know. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's and that's just it. And, you know, uh, just yesterday here in Los Angeles, we had another one of these police things where the police shot the dog uh, in Hawthorne. I'm sure you've right. seen that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a tricky deal with the police, I mean, because you can't, it's a sad situation, and the drug war has really added to that. You know, back when I was growing up, people, you know, when I was a little kid back in the early 60s, um, people thought of the police as your, their friendly neighbor. People trusted the police. They looked for, you know, they, they were glad the cop was driving down their street. And now we live in a world where even rich white people who pay a lot of taxes are afraid of the police. You know, what right. is the deal with that? You know, people that... People that make a lot of money, pay a lot of taxes, are afraid to just basically uh, interact with the cops because they don't know what they're going to do. And it's uh, and, and I think the drug war has had a huge impact on many, many levels, uh, all the way from the idea that police might be taking antidepressants to the gun situation to the level of violence and craziness to the gangs to having to fill private prisons to all these different aspects that the drug war works on. But the drug war has, has, has really had a huge effect on, on making the police no longer, uh, these people you trust. Right. For sure. You know, and it's actually, it's interesting that, you know, um, if you know how to talk to them, which is pretty much actually just talking to them like normal people, they usually don't act like, you know, the the stereotype that you normally get either. And I've actually been round around, particularly when I was hanging out with the Occupy group, because they're always really nervous when the cops show up. And I've never had a single problem with a police officer as an activist ever. And it's usually because I just approach them like somebody who isn't doing anything wrong, because I'm not. And people tend to be so nervous around cops that even if they're not doing anything wrong, they start acting nervous, which of course makes it look like they're doing something wrong. And then you know, I guess part of it is that I had kind of a unique experience working at a 24-hour um, 7-Eleven for many years when I was younger. And we, the cops always come and hang out and talk to you. And you get to know them and you get to find out about their world and where they live. And, you know, for them, they're trying to make sure you're not going to shoot them. You know, you don't generally go your day-to-day life thinking about whether or not people are going to shoot you. And if you are concerned about that because you're a police officer or a soldier, it's definitely going to change the way you interact with people. But, um I don't want to get too far on that tangent. One of the things, actually, I, I normally do at the beginning of every one of these shows, and it occurred to me that because I knew a little bit about your background already, I didn't you know, feel inclined to ask this question, but being as how, obviously, some people listening to this show have never heard of you before, why don't you take a moment to, um, there's usually, the question I ask is, you know, what was the precipice moment for you? What was the moment that made you decide to go from just being a regular guy who was part of the world to being <laughs> an activist trying to make it better? You know, was there, uh, a, was it one moment? Was it a few moments? Well, it was a few moments. I I grew up with a comedian named Bill Hicks, who Mm -hmm. passed away in 95 from cancer. So if any of your listeners know who Bill Hicks was, uh, he ended up being a very politically engaged comedian. We grew up together, went to high school, had a rock band together, several rock bands together. And then he went off to be a comic. I went off to be a musician, um, went through different phases. Uh, my, My band broke up. 
his comedy got more political, and then we joined forces uh, later on, and I started producing all of his records, and I produced his first comedy concert stand-up. And then Bill started getting into more conspiratorial stuff. He was like one of the actually the very first people I know to actually start using the world new the word New World Order. Mm-hmm. Uh we're talking late eighties here. Um this is way, way pre Alex Jones or any of this. And um you know, and before you and not long after that, uh the Waco siege happened and so I, I guess it was the uh the whole Waco incident with the Branch Davidians that was a huge turning point and we were there filming during the seventh day of the siege and then seeing that the government lit the church on fire and burned all those people and then after bill passed away from cancer i started hanging out a little bit more with with alex jones and and started driving up there and filming and i got to actually know a lot of the branch davidians and realized because the, the government and the and everybody in the media was basically saying these people were trying to commit suicide and I got to know a lot of the Branch Davidians and, and realized that was just all completely fabricated. And it was just extremely in your face. First person, you know, it's one thing when you're watching it on TV, seeing it on the news, but it was another thing, you know, when you're actually hanging out with these people who had just had their families and friends all burned to death. And they're sitting there saying, no, you know, we never wanted to die. We're just these people just trying to, you know, maybe the guy leading us was kind of had some problems and he was a little bit of a nut. You know, whatever. I don't really know what all David Koresh's deal was, but it certainly didn't deserve for a bunch of women and children and babies to be burned to death. I know that. Right. And so that was really a that was a huge turning point for me. Yeah, that's actually if um, I when I, the, when I watched the movie uh, Waco: The Rules of Engagement, I got finished watching it. I was so angry, I literally went to the air immediately <laughs> and started ranting about what I had just seen in that film. Um, and I've mean, actually, you know, one of these days I'd love to get whoever put that film together on here too, to talk about it, but it's definitely an interesting turning point. Now, how does this link up to basically your interest in drug decriminalization and ending prohibition? Well, I mean, you know, many years later, I, I just got involved with basically this is back in Austin, Texas now in the nineties. And we had this thing there called Austin public access TV. This is before the internet, keep in mind, right? I know it's hard to imagine, but this is before we had this thing called the internet, but we had this thing that was a public access TV station, which back for us, this was like our internet because we could go down there and and create TV shows and they would be broadcast over cable TV uh, into like almost a half a million homes uh, around the surrounding area. And this, you know, this was amazing because you could, I could, you could go down there and you could, you could, do things about your band, politics, religion, and you you know you could you could curse, you could I mean you could get away with a lot on this public access station. There really wasn't any censorship, and so it became the, the this Austin public access became kind of a a uh, a breeding ground for a lot of this conspiracy theorist types that that kind of were generated and came from this whole movement, and that's really you know how I came up through that, and you know. I work with Alex and some other people. I I, I produce videos with a um, comedian named Joe Rogan who did Fear Factor, another comedian named Doug Stanhope. Uh, and I was working with other people, and I decided, and this was, you know, and this wasn't long after my brother had passed away. My brother was schizophrenic, and he had a seizure. Then my mom died um, from liver failure. She was... Uh, um, 
you know, she had to have a lot of insulin, diabetes, and she kept drinking, and then my dad died, and so I had all these deaths all in a row, and, and I attributed every single one of these deaths to the legal drugs of alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceuticals, and at the same time, I had uh, a friend that went to a prison camp, a guy named Mambo Johnny Trainer, who was a, a local drummer in Austin, who used to grow the only really good marijuana you could get in Austin back in the time? That was like it was like the only guy that had like what we called the kind bud back then. You know, this is right. pre-hydro, pre-dispensary, way back in the day. But it was you know it was like the good stuff. Um, he gets arrested and he went to a prison camp. When he came back from a prison camp, he died. And so you know those factors, and and then not long after 9/11. When Bush came out with the uh, "if you buy drugs, you support terrorism" thing, uh, I was seething. I was having another like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? You know, am I going to just be a guy who tries to make money, or am I going to be a guy that tries to make a difference? Maybe I could try to do both. <laughs> um, and I decided to do a film about the drug war. It was definitely a good one, um, and as I had pointed out earlier, uh, just the different ways that it went about things, you know, and that kind of brings us back to where we were before I asked you to do that, but, you know, the the trip to Amsterdam, and, you know, uh, that actually led to me talking, because I talked to people from all over the world because of my involvement with the Zeitgeist Movement and other activism um, on the Internet, um, and I've asked people who live there, you know, what's it like, you know, to, to live in this decriminalized situation, and... Um, it's certainly not the the crazy anarchy that you know, like for that sheriff guy you were talking to is trying to lead the world to thinking. Right, right. You know, and, they, and when you and when you talk to people like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, he's the guy. I mean, he's still around. He's still huge and famous, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And people, you know, throughout the years are always like, "Oh, he's in big trouble now," and then nothing ever happens to him, right? I mean, the guy just completely controls. You know, it'll. I'll be amazed the day that guy ever gets in any kind of trouble. Um, you know, and, and uh, he was like, you know, he. I had him on camera basically saying, oh, when you go to Amsterdam, you're step, there's, everybody's on drugs and you're stepping over bodies in the street because everyone is so <laughs> high on drugs. And then when you right. talk to other people, they're making it sound like Amsterdam is just this, this mountain of orgy, like pot, you know, just crack heroin just completely insane and then of course you go there and it's just like dun, 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 like happy little street music and people dancing around and and you know you have to search out these coffee houses so even just to find marijuana you have to go you have to go looking for it and then it's mm -hmm. talking about hard drugs then you really got to go looking for it and you know and I, you know at the time i was looking more like a rocker and i get the occasional like guy coming up to me asking me if i wanted to buy ecstasy or coke or something like that but you know, you had to search it out. And, and so this this fantasy that by decriminalizing drugs, you know, Amsterdam turned into this hellhole was just ridiculous. Right. And there wasn't any gunfights in the streets. And there, you know, I mean, all the things that I can say, having grown up in the area where the drug war is kind of ground zero, you know, it, Amsterdam doesn't look anything like Pontiac or Detroit, Michigan. You know, it doesn't look anything like you know, the the places that I live, like, you know, certain parts of Cleveland or, um, you know, places in Ohio, you know, that are also like projects and all that, you know, and there's definitely a difference, you know, and the, the expose that you did, for example, on the stuff that Ricky Ross did, um, you know, and that life and how that developed, you know, it was also something I think a lot of people are not really aware of when they think of the drug war, especially the average suburban voter, 
has no freaking idea what that's like. You know, they, they have no clue what it's like to live in those situations. They might drive through Detroit to go to a concert or something, but they, you know, but they are really good at tuning out, you know, um, things like the homeless people on the street or the, the prostitutes. It's like they don't exist, you know, but you definitely gave a very clear um, picture of what it's like to live in those cities and what the drug situation does to those places, you know, um, and that's why, you know, especially in regards to that, you know, that first film, I definitely tell people, you know, search this film out, try to find it on places like Netflix and Amazon or whatever, you know, give this guy credit for the work you did, because especially like that guy who volunteered to be a homeless guy lying on the side of the street, you know, filming <laughs> people, I can tell you having grown up in that neighborhood, I would never do that. You yeah. could never pay me to do that. Never, that's never, funny. never. That's my boy. Right, that's my boy. That's my homeboy. That's uh, Mac Lindsay, who's actually a comedian. And anybody living in New York right now, uh, try to Mac is out there working at being a comedian and doing all the clubs out there in New York right now. So if you're in New York, you're a comedy fan, go see Mac Lindsay. That was the guy from the movie that that helped me film those scenes of crack dealers in L.A. And, uh, yeah, no, no, I, but I, I get, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and in LA, you can live in one neighborhood and not ever see the ghetto by certain routes that you take on the freeway. So you have to, you have to go find the ghetto here in LA or, or take that kind of a route. If you stay on the major interstates, you'll never really see the ghetto. Um, and, you know, talking about freeway, Ricky Ross, you know, we were talking before the interview and you're asking me about that, but you know, Ricky got out of prison. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ricky uh, was held by many as the guy that started the crack epidemic, and it turned out that he was getting his cocaine, not crack, but he was getting his cocaine from a CIA connection. This was all tied into the Iran-Contra, um, and you could actually just, just Google the name Freeway Ricky Ross, and it's a pretty incredible story, and, and uh, Freeway Rick and I have actually ended up becoming friends, and Rick's out of prison now, and he's actually doing a lot of really good things for the community. Well, that was actually it was another thing because, of course, like having grown up next to drug dealers like that, when, when the story started, you know, I found myself, you know, initially kind of disliking the character that he is, and then then there was that scene that you brought up where he went to deliver drugs at this house, and then he saw the look on the kid's face, like, you know, thanks for taking the money that was gonna pay for our freaking, you know, dinner tonight, jerk. You know, like like he understood in that moment that he was essentially inflicting the poverty that he was trying to escape from on other people. You know, um, and that he had remorse in that moment and actually started to warm me back up to remembering, okay, well, he got into this, you know, because of the situation that he was in, the environment that he was in. Like, like one of my mentors in the streets, the one of the first kids to take me in, you know, ended up being a drug runner. Like, he just delivered. And I was like, why, why are you doing this? He's like, I know you're against this stuff. He's like, well, I can't pay for college any other way. You know, there was literally no way. You know, it's so a, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a fine line, and 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 you know, people that, and I'm not gonna sit here and go like, oh, I know all about the ghetto, or not. You know, I'm a guy from sure. Texas. I'm a white guy. From, I I don't know what it's like to live in the ghetto. Obviously, you know a lot more than I do what it's like to live in the ghetto. But for until people, you know, have to live through those kind of situations, um, you know, what you have to do to survive, and you know. You know, people are going to try to survive, uh, you know, and if you don't have food, I mean, basically the point I think Ricky is making is that when you can't, uh, when you don't have food in your to, in your stomach, you're going to do anything. And right. can you blame, and you can't really blame people. And the mm -hmm. drug war has created a situation of that. It doesn't, the point is, is that we shouldn't have this, 
in that country. We shouldn't have, we don't need to have all these like people starving to death and they got to resort to selling drugs in order to feed themselves. That's, you know, that's, it's because of the drug war that we have that situation. Right. Absolutely. No, yeah, then that's what I was saying. I kind of came full circle. So, I mean, you said he does a lot for his community now. You know, how does he look back on that part of his life in retrospect? I mean, did he continue down that path of remorse and essentially understanding what he was doing? You know, I, I don't know if it's so much remorse as it is, you know, he's not a kind of guy that sits around feeling sorry for the, what he did. He's he's pretty sure. much of a live in the in the present tense now. I mean, he realizes, you know, that he did create a lot of destruction, but I think He's also karmically making it up by trying to help a lot of people. And, and, you know, as the story goes back in those days, he used to like kind of almost be the Santa Claus of the ghetto. I mean, he used to share his wealth with a lot of people. And so, you know, he was earning a lot of money from people's addictions to crack, I guess you could say. But uh, he was also, you know, he actually was building a youth center. I mean, how many crack dealers do you know that, like, build a youth center, you know, sure. with the money from the crack? So it's a, it's a tricky, you know, it's a tricky deal. It's a tricky deal. He he, he used what he had to, to make it happen. And, and I get a lot of flack from people going, you know, like accusing me of glorifying some crack dealer and jumping on like, oh, this is like the whole, you know, hip hop, you know, it's cool to be a gangster bandwagon and all that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've, you know, maybe when I was younger, you could accuse me of that. But now that I've, I've gotten older and, and I come full circle on this thing, you just start to see all sides of people just trying to survive. For sure. That's why that kind of brings us back to what we were saying is that most people don't understand what it's like to live in that situation. I mean, especially as we have economic difficulties in different places, like there are frequently times like, you know, where I've struggled to be employed because of where I live. And people who don't live in this area don't have any idea what it's like to literally, literally go out and put applications everywhere you possibly can. You know, you've now written literally 60 to 70 applications out and put them out and you get no calls. People have no idea what that's like. Because, and to them, the world is still set up. Maybe it is where they're living. Maybe they're still, maybe it is still easy to get a job. Maybe it is still easy to make a legitimate living where they live. So it's out of sight, out of mind. It, it, it's impossible for them to even equate it. And I think films like yours go a long way to be, you know, giving people an education, you know, directly as to what it's like to live in that situation. So... Now, I think we've talked a little bit, you know, about the first film, and obviously, you know, you made a new one, um, and there are screenings on that going now, um, and before we get into giving details about that, what made you decide you needed to make another film? Well, you know, I, I actually made another one called How We'd Won the West that was a more con- comical film that came okay. right after American Drug War, and that was, you know, I guess what you would call straight-to-video kind of a deal, although it is on video on demand now, and all the, through all the same distrib- distributors. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, I guess cause the drug war continues and so many people said, well, after the first film, which is kind of the A to Z covering all the issues, what are you going to possibly do? And I didn't want to make a movie where it's, you know, like star Wars part one. Now here's part two, like where you got to watch the first one to get the second one. And, you know, I wanted to, to try to keep it real as possible, but at the same time, there's so many people out there doing films and documentaries about marijuana that the, the the market on what you call pot docs has become so crazy saturated. But 
But at the same, but at the same time, the it's it is the battle over the legalization of marijuana that is front and center, and so that that is the real deal right now. That's basically on the news. It's everywhere. That's where the raids are taking place. Everything's going on. Living here in California, I'm in the middle of it all. Uh, so what to what to do? Like how to keep it in the drug war vein? When I started off, you know, we spent over over a year making more of a informational based type documentary filming doctors and scientists and experts and lawyers and and it was going to be this very informational driven talking head type of movie and to tell you the truth I got bored editing it and realized that I'm I'm more of a touchy feely through the heart kind of a guy and those are the kind of movies I like I like I, you know I I myself am more attracted to watching films that are more story driven and more emotionally driven, you know, keep you emotionally involved, make you either love the characters or hate the characters or root for the characters or hope for the characters demise. And that's the, we ended up taking more of that turn and decided to make it more of a personal story. And a lot of it had to do with then what happened with my wife and I, my wife and I, I couldn't have children and we became foster parents Mm-hmm. And we went through the whole indoctrination of getting indoctrinated into the foster system. And this had nothing to do with the movie, by the way. This is something completely separated from the movie that started long before we started working on this second American drug war film. Uh, and, and But then later down the line, and you have to go through months and months of all this rigmarole before you even get your first foster kid. We get this one kid to come to our house, and it's right before Christmas. And she's an 11-year-old girl, seems completely normal, and yet we get handed all these prescription medications, almost like a when someone you know brings like a like a like a wounded animal or something like that, going you know give it these pills in the morning, give it these pills at night, you know what I mean? It's just, right, it's right. It's like this disconnect of like here's this kid, now here's all this stuff you got to give it, you know? And uh, it was so weird, but at the same time, if we didn't give the child all these these drugs. They would just take her away from us. So we, you, you're forced to play the game. If you don't play the game, well, then the kid will just be off somewhere else, and then you didn't help her at all or help the kid at all. So we're forced to play the game. And basically, what we found out was that the the group home that this child had just come from uh, had ten other kids, and and um, they were all given Adderall at six in the morning, so they would. You still there? Oh, it just came by. Did you hear that? Okay, yeah, I'm you're fine. On. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound fine. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, okay. So basically, it, it, uh, at 6 in the morning, they would give all 10 of these kids Adderall at about 6 in the morning so that they would wake up and go to school. Adderall is basically speed. And then they'd give all 10 of these kids a uh, powerful tranquilizer at about 7 o'clock at night so they'd all go to bed. Wow. And you And you find out that most kids in the foster system are drugged. And it's really a way of controlling them. And, and and the ironic part is that a lot of these kids are removed from their birth parents because they're, you know, drum roll, uh, punchline, because the parents are using drugs. Right, but right. But it's, it's not the kind of drugs that can profit the government. So the parents that are caught using the kind of drugs that don't profit the pharmaceutical companies or the alcohol, well, you know, or, or, or the government, um, then the kids are taken away and then put it be put on these other drugs and, and they'll you know the, oh the kid is depressed because he was removed from his mother like well gosh that's weird like we better give him these pills uh, and so that suddenly 
became like a really important part. And, and through that, kind of a light went off of my head, and, and I realized that this new drug war movie should be about how the drug war affects children. And since we had already been doing all this research into, into people actually curing cancer, not just treating the side effects of cancer with cannabis, uh, people actually curing cancer, killing cancer cells using these like new powerful new forms of cannabis oil that are being created. Uh, we decided to make to, to to gel these stories together, and then it also became a story about uh, pediatric cancer and children in general of children's struggle and plight because of you know the the ridiculous drug prohibition laws and how it affects. Children of all types, including kids, uh, we go to Juarez, Mexico, where little kids are being recruited to kill for about forty dollars a pop for the cartels. You know, and 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 another major part of the movie is about a little boy named Cash Hyde who uh, has a brain tumor, and the parents, you know, the, the little boy is basically in a coma for forty days, not eating or using the bathroom for forty days in, in a uh, ICU unit in Salt Lake City. And the parents start sneaking in this cannabis oil that they discovered on the internet and injecting it into their son's feeding tube, you know, unbeknownst to the hospital staff. And the little boy pops out of the out of his coma and starts eating again. And then the brain tumor shrinks and goes away. And, and the hospital staff thinks that they just witnessed a miracle. And when uh, the the father of the boy, uh, Mike Hyde who's one of the main characters of the film, tells the hospital staff that it was cannabis that did this, that, you know, they, they want nothing to do with it. And that's kind of where the story starts on that level. And so, you know, like the first movie, you know, it's kind of, I guess, my editing style of interweaving stories together and interweaving issues and stories together to keep it all moving at a pretty high pace. And uh, the second film is 90 minutes long, so I made it shorter than the first film. And I try to... You know, there's a lot more that could have been put in this movie, but I try to make a movie that can really move fast enough to where it will keep people's attention that aren't even necessarily right. interested in the topic. You know, I want to make I'm not I, I don't want to preach to the choir. Um, you know, there's a lot of documentaries out there. I feel that are just kind of preaching to the choir. I'm I'm trying to make a documentary that people who don't totally agree with me, they may like sit through it and roll their eyes, but at least after they watch it, it's going to give them something to think about and maybe do a little research. For sure, and you know, you definitely succeeded with that, at least with the first one, for sure. You know, although I was already open-minded because that's the way I am, you know. Um, and the second one just kind of re, you know, reinstated that. Uh, the the whole argument about marijuana is so ridiculous to me. Um, and while I don't use it myself, because of some of the side effects would probably be pretty complicated to some problems I already have with short-term memory and things like that. Um, it, people like my mother took it because um, you know it was actually funny. I remember my 18th birthday. I she was so good at keeping it from me that she was using it um and it was my 18th birthday after everybody had left she pulls out the stuff and wants to smoke a joint with me yeah. and I, and I didn't want to do it at the time and I you know and I understand what she was going from but she had glaucoma she had cancer she had lupus I mean she had so many things that were complicating her quality of life and I did not look down on her for deciding to do it and I certainly especially since I remember the time period of her life that came shortly after she, well, after when she got the cancer, um, she had, that was when she had not been doing it anymore. Like, she wasn't doing it for a long time. And when they finally found the cancer, she had this, like, tumor, like, the size of her fist between her heart and her lungs. It was totally inoperable. And, you know, and watching that, 
you know, your second film and the story about this kid, it made me wonder. I'm like, geez, I wonder if my mom's pot use was keeping her tumor down all that time. You know, because they literally just kind of discovered it out of the blue, you know, that it was there and it was huge. So, it, like, it mm-hmm. hadn't been going for a long time. You know, and when it comes to the pharmaceutical companies, particularly when it comes to cancer, you know, uh, like uh, Peter Joseph's brother actually recently did a documentary right. about that topic. And, um, Brzezinski, I, yeah. Actually, that's the second. You know, he, he that's the second Brzezinski movie. They're both amazing. Right, and I was so angry because I just it, especially since it, when my mom, right before she died, like she showed me this paper, and I of course couldn't make heads or tails of it, but she said she had overheard some of her doctors, and they were talking about this paper, and she kind of got her hands on it, and she looked at it and said. According to this, my white blood cell count is such that they should not be doing chemo on me, yet they're doing it anyway. So if something happens to me, you know, please investigate this. And I didn't know where to take it from there, unfortunately. Um, but when she finally passed away, and it looked very much like, essentially, what had happened with her was that they should not have been using chemo at all, and that eventually it caused her kidneys to fail, you know, and so they, she died. So you, you sit there and you're looking at the screen as this information is coming to you about the different alternative methods that might have been used, and you're like, these bastards killed my mother. You know, they killed my mother. You know, it's it really starts to become yeah. more personal to you. Um, and I guess that's another thing. It's kind of hard to equate to somebody, but, you know. You and it ha- should be personal, it, yeah. You had a family member obviously taken by cancer as well. Um, you, you talked about that in the first film. Um did he ever get to see any of your work, or did he pass away before you were done? Uh, yeah, no, my dad passed away long before I was done. He was, he was, he he died just in the very beginning stages of the first American drug war. Um, he got to see. I I had done a book about Bill Hicks, uh, called Agent of Evolution that came out on HarperCollins in the UK and. He got to see that, and he was proud of that. And I just got started on the American Drug War film, and he, it made him real nervous. Um, he was very worried about my safety and, and thought I was a little crazy. He was proud of me for doing it, but at the same time, he, uh, you know, one of his dying wishes was like, you know, be careful, you know, right? Uh, because he thought I was playing with fire. Right. Well, that's, you know, and I guess that, you know, was the common misconception at the time. I think actually my mother would have loved your film. Um, and to, but to, when it comes to the whole issue, and that's actually something that um, I wanted to bring up, and I had this in my notes, um, when Gary Johnson pointed out that, um, and this is, you know, only somewhat related, uh, but basically that the issue is the authorities involved with telling us what drugs are dangerous and what drugs are not. You know, um, essentially, when they do something like label marijuana as being as dangerous as these other hard drugs that it's labeled next to, your child goes out into the world, and, you know, the drug pusher, of course, has every interest in getting them into whatever will be best for them financially, but you give them marijuana, and then you obviously see, well, this this isn't so bad. Why I don't get it. You know, what else are they lying to me about? you know, is essentially the message that the kids get because the authorities are telling them, oh, no, it's bad, it's terrible, it's just as bad as, you know, anything else. And then they smoke this stuff, you know, and particularly the more despicable among the dealers, you know, is going to try to mislead them. And, you know, that's actually like within the, the Zeitgeist Movement or Venus Project proposal, we suggest a huge stress on accurate education, but you can't even educate people about the dangers of these drugs if you're doing it in a way 
that that ruins your own credibility. And you know, something like marijuana, for example, it's even when I was you know somewhat on the the anti-drug bandwagon, I still thought it was ridiculous that we were drinking alcohol and that was okay, but marijuana was not. You well, know, I mean, it, it, you can make any argument you want, but at the end of the day, it's an herb. You know, and right. that's why we have we have like the top oncologist from San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, Dr. Donald Abrams, a uh, hugely you know, acclaimed professional man, basically saying that he, he believes that it should just be classified like uh, saw palmetto or echinacea or something like that. It's, it's, sure. a, it's, a, it's an herb, really. And just because smoking it, which is really just one way of ingesting it, uh, and it is makes you high, that's not a reason for it to be illegal. There's probably a lot of things if you smoked it would probably make you feel crazy. Um, you know, it's funny that the black market, and we go into this a little bit in the movie, the black market is really what has perpetuated this, you know, this whole industry of people trying to get high off THC and, and, and breeding marijuana that's high in THC when there's a lot of other aspects of the marijuana plant that have been forgotten because the only profit to be made is is for the black market use and and so the only way to make or to to grow profitable marijuana is marijuana that gets you super high uh and so it's it's because of the black market and prohibition that has created all this and the it, with along with the cartels and marijuana making up reportedly 70% of all the cartels profit right now and the people on that side of the fence say drug legalization or drug de- decriminalization is a defeatist attitude. That's what they'll say. <laughs> it's a defeatist attitude. And at the same time, those same exact people will tell you that, well, but if we take marijuana away from the cartels, they'll just do something else. It's like, well, gee, that's a defeatist attitude. So you're saying like you're saying we should let the cartels continue handling marijuana because if we take it away from them, they'll move to another another industry. Okay, gee, that that's not defeatist. Well, right, and that's well. Aside from the fact that it's defeatist as opposed to what it, prohibition just doesn't work. It hasn't worked ever in history. You know, it, it, that's and essentially it becomes very clear, particularly when you review things like Michael Rupert. Like my my audience is very familiar with him. Um, you know, and the different things that he said about the CIA. You know, and you guys go into a lot of stuff about that, about the CIA, you know, selling drugs or being involved with drug shipments and all that. It's pretty clear that people just don't want it to be legal because they're making too damn much money, you know, from the prohibition. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and you don't really have to even believe in any kind of big conspiracy theory to, to get all this. You just – if you just have the basic belief that people are greedy – um, then, then you get it. You got it. The drug war is a perfect scam because at the very root of the drug war is the concept that you can put a person in a cage because they're consuming something that doesn't profit you. That's that's like the fundamental aspect of the whole drug war. Now go out there and make a zillion dollars. You know what I mean? And it's it's a perfect scam. It works. It works great for anybody, including. You know, people say, oh, you know, there's no proof that the CIA was selling cocaine. Well, you know, but people in the CIA that were flying jets back and forth from places like Nicaragua or people flying jets back and forth from places like Vietnam or people flying jets back and forth in places like Afghanistan. Um, yeah, if I could make a million dollars in one day, would I do it? I, maybe I would. Right. That's, you know, for sure, when you look at it that way, particularly in regards to the effectiveness of 
you know, prohibition and as opposed to education. That's why I was bringing up the PCP thing earlier. That's all the piece of education I ever needed. I'll never touch that crap. You know, you know, at that point, no amount of just say no, and certainly no amount. It could be as legal as drinking water. You yeah. know, I would never want that in my body. You know, and there's probably and and the true and the funny part is is that there's probably pharmaceuticals that'll make you just as crazy. You know, oh, and, yeah. and PCP is kind of even I guess based on pharmaceutical like horse tranquilizer or something. I don't know what it is, but. Uh, yeah, no, you know you're exactly right. And back when I was younger, people used to talk about PCP like it would be cool. I didn't really know anybody that you know growing up in white suburbia, Texas, Houston, Texas, and then Austin. I didn't know any PCP users, but I think one time I had smoked a little bit of marijuana that had been spiked with a tiny bit of PCP, and it was a, it was a horrible experience of just feeling disconnected. But when you see someone just going crazy wild like they do, um, you know, that that are heavy PCP users, then, you know, you are glad that there's a cop around. And, you know, and then you just, you know, gosh, I wish I could just uh, feel like I could call the police without thinking they're going to come shoot my dog, you know. Right, for sure. And that's, you know, um, and I guess there are other things that are like that. Like, you know, me being exposed to what crack addicts are like was more than enough for me to go, yeah, that stuff's the frickin' devil. Um, heroin, the same way. You know, I'm not a religious person, but if you're going to do heroin, you might as well just inject Satan into your frickin' veins. You know, if there were such a thing, that's what it's like. I mean, it's, you know, I've met people who have come away from heroin many years later. You know, they're clean. They're even health nuts. Um, one girl in particular I know, you know, she's a former heroin addict of the highest order, like, you know, something straight out of Requiem for a Dream. Ah, she's, just, I just watched that the other night. That's uh, funny you brought that up. That movie will scare the hell out of you, too. Yeah. You know, but it's just like something, that was her life. And she's, even now, years later, she's totally recovered. She's a health nut. She exercises constantly. She's very careful about her diet, you know, doesn't go near anything resembling a drug. It's still there. Like, it is clear when you talk to her and spend time with her that something was destroyed by her time as a heroin addict that will never come back. You mean like it, it's like the just it, the thought of it scares her, like she's afraid she could actually do it again? Or no, just there's like just something she... about her. Like, I remember her before heroin and I remember her right, after. Right, okay, I get what you say. Like it killed a part of her spirit or something. Right, I mean, yeah. what, it's like some kind of brain damage left over or something, I don't know, but... You know, you can definitely tell, you know, you can tell, you know, you can also tell that she's clean now and that she's healthy, you know, but like there's also just different like rock stars and stuff you can see as they progress yeah. over here's the different effects that it has, you know, and it, I guess that's what I'm saying to people is that, you know, if, because if for the longest time, even among activists, people are like, you know, why are you on this attitude about this? You know, are you just drinking the propaganda? I'm like, no, dude, I, I grew up next to it and I watched it, you know. Isn't that, isn't that what's interesting, though, is that say a movie like Requiem for a Dream in which they, you know, are being honest about it. And some people might say, oh, it glorifies it. But, yeah, I don't know how much you could say that when the kid's arm turns purple and they have to saw it off. But I, I to me, a film like that does so much more to stop drug abuse than a just say no campaign or a dare campaign. And it's because it, it because they're, it's like being honest. And, and these, you know, these government attempts, these so-called things about this is your brain on drugs or just say no or all these campaigns they've done, you know, it's just shown time and time again that it just causes more kids to do drugs because it's it's putting it front and center. And also the government is, is telling kids that uh, that crystal meth and, and crack cocaine and marijuana are all equally as bad. 
and then kids smoke marijuana. They right. see that it's not bad, and then they go, well, if the government's lying to me about marijuana, they must be lying to me about crystal sure. meth and crack cocaine. And so people tend to bleed it all together when marijuana never, ever should have been held in the same category as these powerful chemicals. It's an herb. And so them putting marijuana in the same category, it's just been a scam since day one. And and really, if you took marijuana out of the whole drug war equation, out of the out of being Schedule 1 equation, the whole drug war would crumble because there's just really not enough when it comes to just cocaine and heroin and, and crystal meth and all those things to support this whole giant uh, prison complex. Right. You know, that's actually a very good point. And I think that they, they needed to continue to be illegal because it makes up so much of the drug war now. And the reason those other drugs are not as popular is because it becomes pretty freaking evident. And yeah. They suck. Yeah, pot's great, and so they got to keep it illegal because everybody wants to do it. And and the whole ori- origin of the drug war started off as like, how can we put these Chinese people behind bars, or how can we screw over these Chinese, how can we screw over these Mexican people, how can we screw over these black people? That's the very origins of the drug war, and so. It just gives people the, the, the open invitation to, to basically take your stuff and get you caught up in the court system, take your money, and, and just rob you. And, and uh, basically, you, whether you're in a prison or not, the second you're in the system, you're, you're basically the same as in prison as when the government can just take all your money and take all your stuff. Right, for sure. And that's, you know, things like that, you know, as we were saying, you know, it's it becomes pretty damn evident that a drug is bad, you know, um, when you see it. You know, it's like I have never witnessed, like, as in meth was not popular when I was living in the ghetto, so I didn't get to see it. But there's just enough information out there that's even put out by people who are pro-anti-marijuana or pro-marijuana, you know, marijuana, you know, legalization who will tell you, yeah, meth freaking ruins your life here. Yeah. Look Isn't it weird? It, it, it's so it's such a weird thing, and I think that deserves some study, and no one's done it yet. Is how how you know meth has tend tend to be more of like the white rural drug, and black and crack has been more of like the 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 black urban drug, and it's kind of an it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's really interesting because even when you go into Skid Row. You see more of like the white people gravita- gravitating towards the crystal meth. It's a, you know, it's a, somebody should study that. There's probably something to do with your life. I mean, I don't know. I guess I've heard, for example, that meth is kind of like a, like you know, a speed on steroids, so to speak. And you know, maybe it has to do with like whatever it is that they're self-medicating for. You know, if you're living the the nine to five, it can be really draining. That's the only guess that comes to mind is that maybe that's what gets them started, but. You know, it just, you would think, that's the other thing, is that it's the kind of thing that it, it clearly does damage to you slowly over time. Like, you know, yeah. when you see the pictures of people who have been on this stuff, you know, it's not an instant thing that ruins your life. You're like you And you can tell it's like it's ruining their complexion, their face, their teeth, their hair. But it's over time, you know, and it probably happens to them slow enough that they don't figure out that they're in danger until it's too late. Um, and that's you know that's why they they go for the drugs that kill you slower. Um, you know I had heard that actually heroin was enjoying a new renaissance because the crack dealers were realizing that crack was killing their junkies too fast. You know, um, but it, in any case, we're down to the last nine minutes, and I want to be sure you get an opportunity. First of all, tell everybody where they can see your films. Well, uh, the film premiered on June 6th. We were in theaters in 20 cities. I won't list the cities, but from coast to coast, uh, and including several cities in Michigan already. 
but right now, I would love it if everybody could watch it on, on iTunes, on Amazon. Uh, I'll, I'll name off a list real quick. Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Viewster, uh, Cinenow, AT&T, Uverse, Charter, DirecTV, Dish Network, Medicom, Ver- Verizon, Fios. Uh, so a lot of these uh, video-on-demand uh, things right now is, is basically where it's at. It's not on Netflix yet. It'll be coming on Netflix. But if you really want to help us out, you know, go watch it on iTunes and write a little review and rate it, you know, or give us a rating on IMDb or on, on Amazon and definitely putting the word out there for anybody in the media or anybody who has a blog or anybody that writes for a magazine or a website that we, you know, if you need to, we could even get you a free copy if you email me through uh, americandrugwar2.com. Um, we can get you a free copy to watch through a Vimeo link to uh, if you want to write a, a review. That's excellent. And, you know, do some screenings. Now, you guys, do you still have some screenings happening? Yes. I don't have them. Oh, my God. There's people doing them are going to murder me right now because I don't have them in front of me. But I know there's screenings, actually. I Okay, there's um, – okay, I know there's one coming up in Lansing, Michigan. And – uh um. Yeah, but you just go to AmericanDrugWar2.com and you can see the list of screenings at any given time. We're working through a company called Tug.com, incredibly cool new thing that's theaters on demand. And you can actually request a screening at your favorite theater in your neighborhood, no matter where you are. You go to Tug.com, click on American Drug War 2, and say, okay, and you give them your top three favorite theaters. They will actually negotiate the theater Set, you guys agree on the date that you're going to do the screening. You need to probably do it about a month out. And uh, then you have to pre-sell enough tickets then to pay for the theater, which usually comes out to be around between 50 to 70 tickets. And then once you uh, pay for the theater, then the rest becomes gravy on top of that. Um, and so you can actually even make a few bucks from doing this. and doesn't cost you a penny. All right, well, that's awesome. I'll definitely recommend the iTunes thing. I've watched films there. And, you know, to those of you out there who pirate things, I get that you want to do everything for free. But, you know, in this instance in particular, when you're talking about a documentary filmmaker who's obviously going to probably have more products that you're going to want to see in the future, you know, show your support. This guy is not some evil corporate monger that you're, you know, slipping the middle finger up to by going and downloading his stuff on Pirate Bay, you know. And the the thing about iTunes, it's kind of tricky, because trust me, I'm not like a big iTunes guy, and I've never in my whole life promoted iTunes, and I'm having to find myself promoting it all the time, but uh, for some reason, like the whole industry now is using iTunes as kind of the barometer for how well a documentary is doing, and so iTunes has kind of become like the, uh, the, the documentary charts, if you will. Um, and so that's why, you know, everybody's always saying, make sure you mention iTunes, make sure you mention iTunes. We're not really making that much money off it, believe me, but it's just helping to push it out there and get more distribution. And, and trust me, there there will be plenty of free versions of this film to go around later, but we're trying to do, you know, what we can to get it, like, distributed through as many channels as possible. And in order to do that, you've got to make sure that it's profitable for the people that are distributing it. For sure. That's actually, I I actually had a conversation with people about that recently because um, Peter Joseph put his stuff up on Netflix and a couple of other places and people were like, oh, he's in it for the money. I'm like, hey, geniuses, he still gives the damn thing away for free on YouTube and everywhere else. He's just trying to add to his distribution so that the, you know, so that the information gets out to more people. 
Yeah, right, exactly. And, you know, and if you have a YouTube subscription, then you get it. You know what I mean? It's like, what difference does it make? Because if you subscribe to YouTube, then you can just watch. You can watch Zeitgeist through YouTube. If you don't, then don't. I mean, you can you can watch the entire American Drug War one right now is posted up by some person I don't even know up on YouTube right now. And you know what? I, I used to like fight to take it down and it's got like a half a million hits on it. But it's like, you know what? Maybe that's a half a million people that wouldn't have watched it unless it had been up on YouTube. So for think, sure. It's like whatever. I think I figure like let let those people watch it and maybe they'll tell a friend and they'll tell a friend. It all it all works out in the end. I mean, at the end of the day, I want as many people to see the film as possible. But, you know, we spent three years and a lot of money on this thing and it just came out. And so this is the deal. But once again, if you if you're sincere about wanting to write a review or just do anything to help promote the movie, I, I get a hold of me through AmericanDrugWar2.com and uh, I'll get you a free link. All right, awesome. In fact, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that off the air after we're done. We're down sure. to like the last four minutes now. Is there anything else you'd like to plug in? Also, I added a little bit more time just in case you wanted to talk about. Do you have any other projects? Do you have anything in mind after this? Uh, you know, one of the ideas for American Drug War 3 that's kicking around right now is a movie uh, that's about... Uh, mass sh the rise of mass shootings paralleled with the rise of antidepressants and oh yeah serotonin reuptake inhibitors and just showing you know basically the history of like these mass shootings and how we didn't used to really have these and t and how and how so many of these mass crazy shootings that are taking place are connected to medication and it's so you know maybe like it would be a little bit along the lines of Bowling for Columbine, maybe like a like an updated version of Bowling for Columbine with the with the drug aspect thrown in there. So that would be kind of where I'm leaning towards American Drug War Three. That's a really good idea, especially since a lot of people don't really they don't have the background to understand that. And I think that the way that you presented your information in the past combined with that would be great. You could even uh, you could take a look at the psycho. Uh, psychotropic and active drugs that they're giving kids nowadays, although there are documentaries about that already, like the medicated child and stuff like that are all really good, but um, no, I would definitely support any efforts you do towards that because I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it, but you know, um, once again, as I had told you off the air, because of where I work right now, they have Fox News up all the time and you always have those drug commercials for the new drug, and Holy crap. I mean, even in the, the commercials for these things, they're putting side effects might include death. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I look at it, and I just anybody that's interested in, in hearing me talk a little bit about this, I just did an interview for uh, WeAreChange.org. Um, you can go there and watch like a little twenty-minute clip of me talking about all these things. But I, I think that uh, if, if a drug, if the side effect is may cause suicide, to me, that's the same exact thing as like may cause you to like start killing people. Because if I'm going to commit suicide, what's to say I'm not going to kill people? Um, and, yeah, thing. and what the hell are you giving a drug to somebody who's depressed? I know it's just, it's just like completely crazy, and they don't. I don't think they understand it. And you know, I'm I'm willing to put myself out there on the line and say that I've I've tried plenty of hallucinogenic drugs before, but the couple of times that I've taken antidepressants, I think it's way worse, way stranger, a lot stranger. And something where you feel like something evil is taking over your spirit is and compared to taking mushrooms or something where, okay, you are hallucinating, you are being, you know, projected into another world, but there's something natural and okay about it where it's still your soul and you're still who you are. Uh, but when my mom died, the doctor gave me Paxil 
and it was a very bizarre, horrifying experience. You know, that's actually something interesting um, that I wanted to point out. Uh, I had an experience when I was younger, like before I was into activism, where this uh, friend of mine's family, because I don't really have a lot of family, my my friend found out, my friend's family found out that like I was just going to be sitting at home for Thanksgiving, and I still very much appreciate that they invited me over, but. One of the things I noticed was that this was kind of a well-to-do family, and it's what I call the Prozac generation. Is the, And I don't even know that necessarily they were all on Prozac, but you're dealing with a bunch of people, adults, sitting around, and they're all just, it's so clear they're all on something. You know, like, they they all talk, like, I call them, like, plastic people. Like, yeah, you know, sound bites, like little soundbite people. It's like, oh, how is... Travis doing? Oh, he's mm-hmm. fine. Um, you know, but uh, Sarah got into a car accident. Oh my, is she okay? The weather oh, she'll is so be interesting. Fine. You know, right? About the weather for hours. But they're sincere, and that's what's mm-hmm. so scary. It's like you just get the it, what I would always what I told Travis when we were going home. Ironically, you know, because it was my friend who invited me over. I was like, you know, I just get the feeling that if I were to scream the word. You know, just the F word, really loud, <laughs> you know, in the room. That's what you want to do just to see what all these people would do because it, it literally is like they're, they're living life as if their soundtrack of their life is elevator music. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they've, they've all got stuff that, you know, that they're being you know, prescribed. I mean, you know, everything is getting a label now for psychoeptic, you know, psychoeptic drugs, you know. Oh, you're sad because you have a divorce or you had somebody to die in your family. You don't need someone to talk to. You need this, you know. Yeah. Your your child, like you talked about, that was, you know, when you brought up your, you know, the, the foster child, you know. Oh, well, so they had a temper tantrum. Well, they need this, you know. Um, it, it's it's like a, a drug for everything and everything with its drug. And the idea that some of these drugs get passed and like with the with the testing that's not necessarily all that fallible, um, you know, it's basically uh, it's kind of a nightmare. And I'm glad that I never got into it. They they wanted me on Ritalin for my ADHD and short term memory loss, and I I had friends who were on it, and they just they they came away from it like, well, yeah, I don't have any problem focusing anymore. Not that it matters because I'm a zombie, you know, um, and that's. So, but basically, I want to thank you for being on tonight. And sure. thank when you, you so much, Neil. And when you start to work on this stuff, please don't hesitate to let me know what's going on, and um, you know, so I can keep people informed. And if you have anything else that comes up that you want me to spread awareness of, you know, or sometimes I also do these shows where I do kind of a panel of various people from around the world to talk about current events. You know, if you're ever not busy, you can come on and talk sure. about it. Okay. Um, and that'll do it for that. I will talk to you a little bit more off the air. I'm going to tell everybody, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Um, and if this is your first time checking out V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Um, there you can find archives of more shows like this one. And if you liked what you heard, you know, consider a donation. It's basically just a tip at this point because I have a job now. So <laughs> just a thank you for the people who you know, um, you know, appreciate what I'm doing because it does take a lot of time out of my life to get these shows together and um, especially if I'm writing a blog, sometimes I'll work as long as 8 to 12 hours on a blog that's going to be for a one-hour radio show. So um, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, and I'll leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.